Welcome to the On Messianic Judaism podcast. This is episode 18, the third in our second season, as each season is 15 episodes long. This second series builds on the first, where we covered the history of the nascent Messianic Jewish movement from the days of Ezra the scribe until the destruction of Jerusalem in 135 CE. This second series will also include interviews with historians and theologians, just as we did last week. And so now, after last episode's brilliant interview with Rabbi Joshua Brumbach, we will continue to explore the history of the Messianic Jewish movement. Hi, this is Daniel Nassim, and today we have a story to tell. I do appreciate you listening to my podcast And by the way, to make sure that you are notified when I upload the next episode, take a moment to subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it, and you will get notified as soon as it is published. In this episode, we are going to look at some of the people, movements, and events that followed and that preceded the Mishnaic era. During this era, the contents of the Mishnah were crystallized preceding the actual act of committing it to writing. Our story begins a little further back, of course, so we will also review its roots in the stories of Hillel, Shammai, and the sages of Yavne. Previous episodes, we've already seen where Yavne was located, geographically south of where Tel Aviv is today. That is where the seat of Jewish learning remained until the end of the Second Great Revolt in 135 CE. In fact, we are told that the Sanhedrin relocated itself there as well. In the Torah, we find the phrase, Make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among you. Exodus 25, verse 8. And this became the story of this center, for in a sense it became a new sanctuary of learning, replacing the literal sanctuary in Jerusalem that had been destroyed. During the first war for independence from Rome, as the city was besieged, the sage Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai was smuggled out. It's worth reviewing how he gained the confidence of the general leading the war by correctly predicting that this general would be appointed emperor of Rome. What followed was not only significant for Jewish history, but for Messianic Jewish history as well. For as we read in the Talmud in Gatin 56b, Then Vespasian said to Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai, I will be going to Rome to accept my new position, and I will send someone else in my place to continue besieging the city and waging war against it. But before I leave, ask something of me that I can give you. Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai said to him, Give me Yavne and its sages, and do not destroy it, and spare the dynasty of Rabban Gamliel, and do not kill them as if they were rebels. And lastly, give me doctors to heal Rabbi Tzadok. Here were rabbis, many of whom, like Yohanan ben Zakkai, had supported themselves with manual labor. Now they were in an academy. It's worth noting that to this day it is considered honorable for rabbis to have their own financial pursuits or businesses, although it is not common in the non-Orthodox world for rabbis to hold regular jobs. At this point also, all learning was oral, by mouth, 
Nothing was written down, but passed down from teacher to disciple. There was no need for it to be written. Logic said that it should not be written. As the Babylonian Talmud reports in Shabbat 138b, the sages taught a similar idea in the Tosefta. When our sages entered the vineyard in Yavne, they said, The Torah is destined to be forgotten from the Jewish people. As it is stated, Behold, days are approaching, says the Lord God, and I will send forth a hunger in the land, not a hunger for bread and not a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. Amos 8 verse 11. And it states, And they will drift from sea to sea, and from the north to the east they will roam to find the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8 verse 12. Outside this vineyard, there were severe restrictions upon the Jews. The Romans forbade synagogue worship or any other gathering of Jews. Scholars were murdered, so much so that only a few, a handful, reportedly survived and were ultimately able to pass on the teachings of the Mishnah. Some Jews joined with the Romans. Elisha ben Abayu, sometimes simply called Acher, the Other, A scholar from Yavne did just that. There are some stories which allege that he even joined with the Romans in their persecution of the Jews. Intriguingly, Talmud Babli Chagigah 15a tells us this. The Gemara poses a question. What was it that led him, Elisha ben Abayi, to heresy? He saw the angel Metatron who was granted permission to sit and write the merits of Israel. He said to himself, There is a tradition that in the world above there is no sitting, no competition, no turning one's back before him, that is, the face of the divine presence, and no lethargy. Seeing that someone other than God was seated above, he said to himself, Perhaps the Gemara here interjects, Heaven forbid there are two authorities and there is another source of power and control of the world in addition to God. Such thoughts led Acher to heresy. End of quote. On the other hand, significantly, Elisha ben Abayu had a loyal following even after his acceptance of Hellenism. He was, after all, one of the major contributors to the content of the Mishnah. To get back to our original point, though, regarding the restrictions that were placed upon the Jewish people outside of the so-called vineyard of Yavne, after the emperor Hadrian's death and the accession of Antoninus Pius in 138, restrictions were actually eased, and circumcisions were once again permitted. After this period, the Sanhedrin reconvened, although it didn't stay permanently in one place for a time, staying in Usha, then moving to Betsharim, to Sepphoris, and in the third century, ultimately to Tiberias. It was in Usha that they regained their footing and became established enough that their authority was once again accepted at large. This particularly came to a head because during the revolt, the Babylonian community had begun to announce its new moons and leap years on its own. And it was only after a considerable power struggle that the academy in the Galilee was able to reassert 
its primacy in this regard. A key rabbi at this time was Rabban Simon ben Gamliel. It was his oldest son, Judah, who became known as Judah the Prince and is usually just called Rabbi in the Mishnah. In other words, if the Mishnah states that Rabbi said, as it often does, everyone knows that Rabbi is Judah the Prince. There were actually six notable leaders in the line of Gamliel. The founder of this dynasty was the teacher Hillel himself. The dynasty went as follows. First, Rabban Gamliel the Elder. This is Gamliel I, who was in the first half of the first century. Then, Rabban Simeon ben Gamliel. Simeon ben Gamliel I, in other words. Then there was Rabban Gamliel of Yavne. We know him as Gamliel II. Then there comes Rabban Simeon ben Gamliel, known as Simeon ben Gamliel II. And then Rabbi Judah the Prince, the editor of the Mishnah. And finally, Rabban Gamliel, who was Gamliel III. Now let's move on from this to a bit of an exploration of the key person in Jewish history at this time, who is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva lived from the year 50 to 135 CE. He came from a family of converts. We don't know whether it was his father or his grandfather converted, but clearly he had no great heritage. Even more, he was a descendant from the ancient evil general Sisera, who had persecuted the Jews during the days of Deborah, the judge. On top of all of this, he didn't take up study until he was 40 years of age. Unlettered and unschooled is the way he is usually described. As many unlettered people do, people who cannot read, he resented and was suspicious of those who had learning. It was taught in a Baraita that Rabbi Akiva said, When I was an ignoramus, I said, Who will give me a Torah scholar so that I will bite him like a donkey? His students said to him, Master, say that you would bite him like a dog. He said to them, I specifically used that wording as this one, a donkey bites and breaks bones. And that one, a dog, bites but does not break bones. So Akiva was not a particularly nice guy in terms of his attitudes of scholars, and yet he was going to become one. Akiva was the chief shepherd of one of the wealthiest men in Israel. One day he met his boss's daughter, Rachel, and he was smitten. Rachel agreed to marry him on one condition, and that condition was that he studied Torah. For this, she was disinherited by her father, who wanted her to pursue a life of earthly rewards just as he had. But instead, as was often the custom, she sent Akiva off to study, and he studied for twelve years. When he came back, he overheard her say through the door that she would gladly send him back for another twelve years to study. So back he went. Akiva studied under the greats, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus and Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania, Nahum Ish Gamzu and Rabbi Tarfon. And then, after 24 years, he returned with a following of 24,000 students. 
But this is when tragedy struck. At some point, almost all of these students were killed by the Romans. Some say it was a plague, but historically that's hard to countenance. Rather, as a key supporter of Simon bar Kozeba or bar Kochba, it would be no surprise that his students were involved in the disastrous war and were especially targets of the Romans upon their victory. Nevertheless, Akiva is remembered as a wealthy, charitable man. He left us with maxims such as, All that God does, he does for the good. And another one, Love your fellow man as yourself. This is the great rule in the Torah. Such phrases might be very familiar to readers of another collection of Jewish writings, commonly called the New Testament. Both reflect Jewish thinking in this era. Famously, Akiva died a martyr on Erev Yom Kippur in Caesarea with the words Shema Yisrael on his lip. His students who stood nearby as the Romans were flaying his, his flesh with iron combs asked him, Even till now? Are you still thinking about your obligations to God even at this horrific, tragic moment? All my life, he said to them, I waited for the opportunity to show how much I love God. And now that I have the opportunity, should I waste it? Then he died with the word one, echad, on his lips. Whatever our opinion of the person, politics, and teachings of Akiva, may we have that level of devotion to Hashem. By the way, if you ever run across Daniel Gruber's book, which is called Rabbi Akiva's Messiah, it is an eye-opener. It's a no-holds-barred prosecution of Akiva, as in a court of law. So, balance is not the author's objective, but there's a lot to consider in this book. It does make a provocative case. With a broader, more contemplative perspective, though, Abraham Heschel's Torah Min Hashemayim puts Akiva in the context of his day and the hermeneutical approaches that he held versus those of Rabbi Ishmael. We're going to move on now and let's discuss how was the Mishnah written. So, naturally, this does all lead up to the creation of the Mishnah. The word Mishnah comes from Shana, which is literally to repeat but it came to mean to learn or to teach for obvious reasons. In previous episodes, and in this one too, but especially in episodes 12 and 13, if you haven't listened to them yet, we've recounted how Yohanan ben Zakkai escaped Jerusalem and was granted an academy in Yavne following the First Jewish War. The significance of this is that in Yavne, he founded a body that took over the religious responsibilities of the Sanhedrin. This council of teachers was called a Beit Din, or House of Judgment. Whereas the Sanhedrin had been composed of Pharisees, Sadducees, and other notable leaders from among the people of Israel, this new council of teachers was definitely Pharisaic. Over the next 70 years or so, this council sifted through all the knowledge that had been passed down to them from Hillel, Shammai, and the other scholars of the previous generation. It was during this period that the notable differences between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai were 
ultimately resolved, and as a general rule, it was decided that though both schools' interpretations were of the highest value, the decisions of Hillel were to be followed. It was also during this time that the canon of Scripture was determined once and for all. Thus, Echa, Ecclesiastes, and Shir Hashirim, the Song of Solomon, were included, but the book of Ben Sirah was excluded. The decision was made and the canon was closed. It was during this time period that Rabbi Akiva lived. So too did Rabbi Ishmael. While Akiva's teachings and methods of interpretation prevailed, Rabbi Ishmael's method of interpretation would ultimately be deemed superior. It is for this reason that today in any daily siddur or daily prayer book, you will find Rabbi Ishmael's 13 principles of interpretation for determining halacha, Jewish law, from scripture. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 135 CE, and after Ishmael and Akiva's time, came Rabbi Meir in Tiberias on the southern end of the Kinneret sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. Rabbi Meir finished the work of codification of the Mishnah that Akiva had begun. In fact, so reputable is he that when there is no authority mentioned for a statement in the Mishnah, it is understood to be Meir. Meir's work of codification would then be redacted or edited by Rabbi Judah, who arranged the teachings into six different categories and we'll survey those in a couple minutes. The general date of its completion, as most say, is early in the 3rd century, as in 200 to 220 CE. Until then, the teachings of the Mishnah had never been committed to writing. It was all oral. It was all by mouth. Even after it was written down, tosefta, or additions, were made. The writing of the Mishnah was, therefore, in many ways a process over a couple hundred years, because there was such strong reservation against a rival to the Torah being set up, and to the idea of this dialogue being put into writing, therefore, in a sense, putting an end to the dialogue. But what we have today is the final product of this process. So, what is the Mishnah? Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Judah the Prince, as we call him, being the key person involved in the production of the Mishnah, took all of these oral sayings, all of these teachings that had been carefully arranged and transmitted by his predecessors, some of which may have been written, but almost all not, and began to put them together. To this day, it's a matter of study as to what the sources of the Mishnah actually were, and we'll never know for sure. In it, there are both definite decisions that have been reached and discussions which were still in progress. As a result, there are actually many contradictions that in themselves provide food for thought and for further research. On the other hand, there are some clear statements, such as the formulations for some blessings, such as Bore Peri Haetz, a creator of the fruit of the earth, and so forth. 
The Mishnah was also not exhaustive. It didn't record everything the Tanaim had ever said on every topic. It was and had to be selective. But as a result, the Tosefta came along, which recorded some of the sayings and teachings that were not included in the Mishnah. But here are the six categories that are in the Mishnah. First of all, the Zeraim, seeds. It covered agricultural laws. Then there was Moed, or seasons, the laws of Sabbath and the festivals. Then there was the third tractate, Nashim, or women, and that dealt with marital laws. Then there was Nezikin, damages, and that dealt with civil and criminal laws. Then there was, fifthly, Kedoshim, holy things, and Kedoshim, even though the temple had been destroyed, records all of the laws of sacrifices. Then, finally, taharot, or purities, and this dealt with the laws of ritual purity. In terms of Messianic Judaism, what, what is the relevance of Mishnah to the Messianic Jew, many ask? In fact, it is quite relevant. We know that Yeshua never criticized the oral Torah, the Torah Baal Peh, the source of the Mishnah, insofar as it helped people to live in accordance with the written Torah. In fact, he commended those who followed the orally transmitted precepts, such as the tithing of mint, cumin, and other herbs. On the other hand, where the orally transmitted traditions laid burdens too heavy to bear on people, he had a problem with that. The Torah was not intended as Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11 tells us, to be out of reach for the average person. Certainly, the holy creator of all that is could have asked more of Israel, but he did not. To be sure, Yeshua often permitted practices that the majority view frowned upon. He ate and drank with sinners. His disciples didn't follow the same hand-washing protocols as the Pharisees. He let his disciples glean food from the fields on Shabbat. As they walked through those fields, a very disputable practice at the time. All of this was within the bounds of the Judaism or practice of the Jews in the first century. It seems that the earliest Messianic Jews did not upset the apple cart in this regard either. That doesn't ever seem to be a point of contention between them and the religious establishment. Rather, their belief that Yeshua is the Messiah and is on the verge of establishing his kingdom was clearly the problem. As has always been the case, it is not what Yeshua said or did that was the crux of the issue. It was who he claimed to be. As always, the question is the same as the one he himself asked. Who do people say that I am? This issue as to the role of the Torah Baal Peh, which becomes the Mishnah of Judah the Prince and which is the foundation of the Talmud that comes centuries later, is one that Messianic Jews wrestle with today. I'd like to conclude by giving you a little bit more food for thought. Messianic Jews today do not have the biblical precedent for an outright categorical rejection of the Torah Baal Peh. 
there is a strong argument to say that while it is not explicitly endorsed, it is assumed in some respects within the New Testament writings. Its codification early in the 3rd century is problematic, as it has been for Judaism in general, but it is also a tremendous advantage. Through the Mishnah, we have a window into the thoughts and ideas of the Tanaim, those early teachers of Yeshua's day, and those of his early followers. In Yeshua, we have precedent for taking the Mishnah's teachings under advisement. In its teachings, is it consonant with the hermeneutical principles that Yeshua laid down in the Sermon on the Mount, in the situations we've just mentioned, and elsewhere? I'll leave that for you to think about. Of course, nothing trumps the authority of the Torah or of the entire 66 books of Scripture that we hold to today. Salvation, for Israel and for the individual, is always and has always been solely through trust in Hashem and by His grace. Judaism teaches that this comes through trust in the person and work of Yeshua, the Messiah, the one whom God sent to us. Yet, The Mishnah is our treasure trove of Jewish wisdom from the early centuries to now. Yes, by men who hadn't come to trust in Yeshua's Messiahship, but also certainly by men who were passionate about living for God and loving Him, even to the point of saying Shema Yisrael with their last tortured. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Do me a favor. Take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. My email address is daniel at nassim.org, and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nassim, and this is On Messianic Judaism.